This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. My name's Nick Barley. It's my honour to be the director of this festival and welcome to this, the first event in the programme for adults in the New York Times Main Theatre. We're so proud to have New York Times as our partners this year, not just because they're helping us uh, to talk about the festival around the world, but because the values of the New York Times are so similar to our values, open-mindedness, and the urge for public discourse at a time when the world needs that discourse so much. And who better then to introduce our program for this year of We Need New Stories than Tim Winton, one of the great Australian novelists, one of the world's great living novelists. If you don't yet know his writing, you need to, you will. And who better to interview him than John Williams, who's the daily books editor of the New York Times. And both of them, I think, are going to talk not just about Tim's new novel, The Shepherd's Hut, but about his work and about his life and about his ideas about Australia and the landscape and the world. Inspiration and imagination are part of what makes these writers so powerful when they come to the book festival. But the writers also need to be inspired by you. And Edinburgh's audiences, I'm sure you'll agree, are very good at that, are very good at inspiring the writers who come here. That's why the festival is so popular around the world with writers. And so I hope you will join me in this WWF-sponsored event in inspiring these authors by giving a huge Edinburgh Book Festival welcome to Tim Winton. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Hi, everybody. Um, From the sound of that, you probably don't need this introduction, but it's not every day you get to introduce Tim Winton, so you're going to have to bear with me. I just prepared a few remarks, uh, and then Tim's going to read, and then we'll talk for a bit. Um, Thanks for coming out on this first full day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm John Williams, as Nick mentioned, an editor and writer at the New York Times. It's my great, great privilege to be speaking with Tim Winton today, one of the most accomplished and acclaimed writers in the world today. We'll be discussing his latest novel, The Shepherd's Hut, and other topics. Tim Winton has won Australia's top literary honor, the Miles Franklin Award, four times. He first won the prize in 1984 for his novel Shallows and has won it since for Cloud Street, Dirt Music, and Breath. His books have been translated into 28 languages and he's twice been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. He's the author of a dozen novels, a half dozen collections of short stories, and several books of nonfiction. He's authored a few plays, some books for children, and increasingly he's adapted his own work for the movies. Reading Winton is a great joy, but thinking about his output can be a bummer. He's the type of writer who makes you feel, no matter what you do for a living or for pleasure, deeply unproductive. (laughs) Winton was born and still lives in Western Australia, which is a bit like saying Faulkner lived in Mississippi and Dickens lived in London. His work owns the place and defines it for many readers who may never even visit but feel they have been there through his eyes. They feature men and women down on their luck, running out of luck, desperately courting luck, and getting flatly rejected by luck. And every so often, for powerful if fleeting moments, 
feeling lucky. The men in particular are hardened by a life of physical toil. In his novel Breath, which, to say it too briefly, is a novel about surfing, the narrator says this about watching men out on the ocean. How strange it was to see men do something beautiful, something pointless and elegant, as though nobody saw or cared. And on the same page, he thinks, there wasn't much room for beauty in the lives of our men. Yet Winton's characters are constantly faced with beauty, most often the awe-inspiring kind of the natural world, but also the beauty of their fellow humans, whom they crave and console and anger and alienate in turn. In Winton's work, there's a remarkably fine-tuned balance between an almost religious sense of wonder and an overwhelming perspective of our individual smallness on the Earth's stage. As one line in Cloud Street goes, suddenly, it suddenly felt like everything was possible and none of it mattered a damn. His novels depict a landscape both austere and lush, uplifting and terrifying. His beautiful memoir, Island Home, is a love letter to the bounty of Australia, but also a note of urgent warning about it. The New York Times described it as a call to arms that is at once distinctively local and painfully global. Much of this might sound grim, but as you know if you've read him, which I assume from the applause all of you have, it's rendered in such dazzling, stylish prose and shot through with so much wisdom and warmth that you're mostly just glad reading it that Winton is here to document the world, human and otherwise, as he sees it. He's also funny. His snappy dialogue can leave you smiling for pages. Almost done, I promise. His characters are often lonely, but they usually have at least a person or two, if not more, in their life and orbit. And for a stretch at the beginning of his latest novel, The Shepherd's Hut, I thought he might be trying something starker, a pure man versus nature story, as 15-year-old Jaxie Clacton sets off on foot after the death of his father to meet up with his cousin Lee, who lives 250 miles away. He's on foot. He walks across Western Australia's wheat belt, an arid stretch where, as Winton writes early in the novel, wanderers stick out like a rat on a birthday cake. But before long, Jaxie comes upon the hut of the title and meets an Irish priest, Fintan McGillis, who's living there in the proverbial middle of nowhere. Fintan has been in hiding for eight years for reasons he never fully divulges to Jaxie. The story of their relationship, mostly bickering with an obvious undercurrent of tenderness, builds to a conclusion that is among the most vivid and emotionally devastating of Winton's career. I have many questions I'd like to ask Tim, so without any further delay, I'm gonna ask him to read a few pages from the novel, and then he and I will talk for a bit, and of course, we'll have time for questions from you uh, before we're done. So please welcome again, Tim Winton. Well, it's gonna sound pretty ordinary after that uh, introduction. This is just prose, really. Um, anyway, this is, um, this, is, this is my little feral 15-year-old Jaxie. When I hit the bitumen and get that smooth grey rumble going under me, everything's hell different. Like I'm in a fresh new world, all slick and flat and easy. Even with the engine working up a howl and the wind flogging in the window, the sounds are real soft and pillowy. Civilised, I mean, like you're still on the earth but you don't hardly notice it anymore. And that's hectic. You'd think I'd never gotten a car before. But when you've hoofed it like a dirty goat all these weeks and months, when you've had the stony, slow, prickle-up hard country right in your face that long, it's bloody sudden. Some crazy shit, I tell you, brings on this angel feeling, like you're just one arrow of light. And bugger me, here I am, hitting 100 already, and still not even in top gear, on squishy upholstery with one of them piney tree things jiggling off the mirror. I'm flying and just sitting on my ass to do it. Off the ground, out of the dirt, and I'm no kind of beast anymore. So what does that make me? Someone you won't see coming, that's what. 
someone you can't hardly imagine. Say I hit your number, called you up. You'd wonder, what the fuck, every one of you? And your mouth would go dry. Maybe you're some stranger I pocket dialed, or one of them shitheads from school I could look for. Any of you's heard my voice now. You'd think it was weather, or a bird screaming. You'd be sweating sand, like I'm the end of the world. Well, no need to worry. I don't forgive you, none of you's. But I'm over all that now. You're all in the past. My phone's flat, anyway. Plugged into the dash, charging or dying, I don't know which. So, relax. I'm not calling. Everything's changed. I'm not what I was. All I am now is a fresh idea fanging north up the highway to where it's hot and safe and secret. I've got someone to collect in Magnet. She'll be waiting and ready. At least, I hope so. Fifth gear. Took me a few goes to find, but I'm there now. With red dirt flashing by, mulga scrub, glinty stones, roadkill crows. The jeep reeks from all them sloshing jerry cans in the back, but the windows are open and the wind is warm and the stink of petrol beats the smell of blood any day. All of a sudden, I'm hungry. I get the shotgun by the neck and heave it over on the back seat. I shove the box of shells away to get at the food and it's still warm on the tin plate. It's good and greasy and tastes of smoke. From the first swallow, I get a hot charge. And I drive like that, with a chop in one hand and the wheel in the other, laughing hard enough to choke. For the first time in my life, I know what I want and I have what it takes to get me there. If you never experienced that, I feel sorry for you. But it wasn't always like this. I've been through fire to get here. I've seen things and done things and had shit done to me you couldn't barely credit. So be happy for me. And for fuck's sake, don't get in my way. Thank you. Um, you described him as feral before you started reading that, so I'm going to start somewhere I didn't think I would. But um, there's a character in Breath, a previous novel of yours named Looney, who is described in that book as solitary and feral. Um, I'd say it applies just as much to Jaxie, if not more. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think of him as the most alone character you've ever written in terms of his connections to the world? Uh, I, don't know if I don't know if I do, but, I mean, it's interesting that th those two characters are, um, they're almost, they're, yeah, they're almost the same people in a sense. Um, you know, boys who are, who feel unmothered, their fathers, you know, are remote, um, finding their way, just full of... Um, Reckless vigor, I suppose. <laughs> but no, I'm not sure if. Um, I think I think Jaxie's more conscious, and, and perhaps that's your point. Jaxie's more conscious hmm. than Looney. He is. Um, he's un, he's kind of unlettered in a way. He's he's, he's not really finished school. Or he's finished everybody at school. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's he's cunning, but he's conscious. So I think, yeah, you're probably right to a degree. He is aware of that he doesn't fit and that and that that he is alone he's a he's a kind of an axis you know an ex accidental existentialist <laughs> well and his cousin lee who he's in love with and who who's the person he's going to see and you you, you know you made it sound like i didn't read the book he is driving in that part that you <laughs> that's right. very soon after he's on foot yeah that's Pro prom before. promise the people tim that <laughs> <coughs> uh and he um but but he 
once his parents are gone and Lee is this sort of, you know, you don't know what Lee is. You assume that they have this very strong connection, but that could be, she exists, but the, the sort of the strength of that connection could be something he's relying on that might not happen when he gets there. And so he just, he really is unanchored from any kind of, you know, Looney at least had Brucey. E and um, so you sort of send him out into this landscape all alone. Mm. And, um, and, and I read somewhere in an interview where you talked about the, the landscape coming first for you always, which is not hard to believe because you write about it so well, but it, but I wonder, if, is that literally true, where you sort of see that expanse, that particular expanse of Australia, before you know who Jaxie is or what his predicament is? Yeah, that, I think that it is true, almost always. Um, the place, the ecosystem comes first, and, and that provides the terms of trade, if you, if you like. Um, the kinds of people who are going to be there, you know, the, sub, are subject to the logic of the place. Um, and uh, I've said this before, but it's, you know, the, the, looking back, the way I've operated, I think, um, and it's not a conscious modus operandi, it's just how it seems to have happened. I, 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 I see the place almost like a, you know, a scene out of a bad western, you know, where you, you the, the, the <laughs> shimmering heat across the salt pan, um, depending on the budget, you know, that goes on for a few <laughs> seconds or a few minutes, you know. Um, and you, you think, you know, well, we're somewhere, but what the hell? What gives? Um, and then over time, there's a dot, and it slowly resolves itself into a, you know... Um, Is it the hut? As a cowboy, you know? <laughs> and uh, he's got a saddle on his shoulder, and so there's a story already. You mm -hmm. know, what is that? It's a, you know, the character comes out of the place, and, um, and I, I find them in, in, in the place. And, and, you know, where they've been, where they're going, is kind of really very much related to, to, to that place and... And, the, and those, you know, the, the ecology, the terms of trade. When you, and I, I think many people here have probably read the book or are familiar enough, this is, not, this is not a spoiler. There are things we definitely won't spoil because the ending is so powerful. But um, when you then see Jaxie at home, his father's under the car and he has this newfound freedoms, one way to look at it, but also mm. kind of a problem on his hands. Um, when you sort of see the characters and their very particular, you know, quotidian dilemma, does that... Does that come as easily to you as that landscape that's shimmering, or do you do you feel like you that's harder to sort of? I think when I was younger, I f I found it hard, uh, harder to write about the indoors because you were just bumping into furniture, and there was this procedural stuff. You got to get them from here to there. But <laughs> I mean, honestly, that that has to apply in the outdoor world because there's right. you know there's geography to contend with. But um, no, I, d I think it's once I've got the place and I've, and the, and, I've, and, the, and the character emerges out of the place. Then I'm, you know, the the process of writing the book is finding out who this person is, what you know, what what's their story, what what what, what lies behind the surface, mm -hmm. um, and to to go back to the silly analogy of the the salt pan and the cowboy, and he's carrying it. Why is he carrying his you know saddle? Because the horse is dead. Why is the horse dead? You know, because he's had improper relations, and and with the horse, and the best way is to shoot the horse. Mm -hmm. No witnesses. Yeah. Um, so that's. Um, so you know what you what you what you see is one thing, but it's what's behind all, all the layers of sh heat shimmer. Um, so it's yeah, writing a book is finding out about the, about the people, and in in a way um, going deeper into the place as well. You said in another interview that 
when you were talking about writing the book from Jaxie's perspective, you talked about how unlettered he was and, and that you know, he's the, the voice in the novel. It doesn't switch perspectives. You said that um, writers need to take risks and to do stuff that is awkward. Um, what was risky about Jaxie? What felt awkward about it to you? Was it, was it, did it feel particularly that way compared to earlier books? I think, I mean, it was actually quite difficult to write, partly because uh, it, the language is so constrained and so grim and, and relentless and misogynistic. Um, uh, and he's a racist, and he's, you know, so you just pile that on. You live with someone like that in, and inhabit his mind and his dreams, and, and he's probably more troubling than his lexicon for a couple of years, and it sort of bends you out of shape a little bit. You, um, you're, you're channeling someone that you're interested in but a little bit appalled by, well, a lot appalled by after, after a while. And, and I think the challenge for me was this kid, like, like most people, he's full of emotion and he doesn't have... He struggles to find a, a language for his for his very strong feelings and his aspirations as well. So it's it was this strange feeling of um, you know, and words are important to me and have been the, the saving of me as a as a person, you know. Um, and as the author, I have I have I have words I could give him. I could I could I could get him partly out of some of his dilemmas, not just by changing the plot, but just by giving him language that I have that would that would. That would liberate him because I think one of the lovely things about language is it is a is a force and a, and a means of liberation um, and change. And he and gets some of that, and the reader gets some of that through. Once he meets Fenton, there's a bit of yeah. You can see a little bit more of Jaxie through Fenton's eyes and and through Fenton's dialogue. You get a little bit of th things that Jaxie wouldn't be able to think mm. of or say himself necessarily. So some uh, of the some of the risk, I think, you know, maybe it was some. I felt you know some of the risk was just doing damage to myself, and some of it was just I was inhabiting this unpleasant little boy at a time when the unpleasantness of men um, is you know is at the forefront um, culturally. Yeah. Yeah, you weren't putting down your pen and then <laughs> going back to a world where everything's rosy. And, no. Um, you said somewhere else, sometimes I really felt that this little scumbag's mercy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a no, pithy way of putting it. Um, but but, I, but you've also talked about how you, you prefer, you know, if we're going to speak in really broad terms, a kind of warmth in fiction and that feeling toward characters than, than more of a distanced authorial, you know, like they're under a microscope. So when, you, when a character like Jaxie presents himself to you, you must feel there must be some sense of tenderness toward him or feeling like he's capable of yeah i mean it would be very hard to to go the journey if 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 you know if i didn't have that sense of um his vulnerability and and his his potential you know and also just the fact that um you know i i lived in the country as a teenager i mean that i had a, had a very different family background to Jaxie and I didn't experience violence um, on a daily basis in the, you know, um, the way he does. Mm. But there, in many respects, there so, it's so often um, writing the book and then thinking about it afterwards that, you know, I guess what, what kept me with him is that he could have, you know, I, he could have been me, I could have been him. Your life hangs on the, these little moments and hinges and, um, you know, um, People are, you know, people are constrained by their circumstances. And a lot of things he didn't ask for. Yeah, Especially that's right. his father's violence. Yeah, I mean, being a scumbag is his way of surviving, yeah. being, you know, um, a victim, really. And, mm -hmm. um, and also, I, I guess, I, you know, I, um, I know kids like that and that you see the way, you know, their life 
can turn and change um, and be liberated, not just by language, but often just by kindness. Hmm. Um, they're very different books, this and breath, but, so I don't want to strain any comparisons. But one more thing did occur to me as I was rereading the new book, which is that Sando in Breath, who's this older surfer who, who kind of takes the two main characters under his wing, um, and Finton have this, whether they asked for it or not, they have a kind of mentor-like quality mm. to these boys. And I wonder if there's anything for you in writing those relationships that's especially satisfying, where you have the kind of perspective of the older person who's lived through a lot of things, and then the younger person who, like you said, is very reckless and full of energy, but doesn't necessarily have the place to put it. Is that, is that sort of conversation important to you? Um. Yeah, interesting. I guess I've, I've written a lot about spoiled gurus or, 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 or ruinous gurus. Or, um, but then every, every teacher is, 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 the, is, the, is the teacher in their moment and then every teacher knows that feeling of obsolescence when the student outpaces you or sees behind the curtain and sees mm -hmm. that you're a, essentially a, you know, faking it till you make it. Right. Um, and every teacher just needs to stay one lesson ahead of the class um, <laughs> but eventually the, the cleverer kids catch up to you and um, right but yeah I guess I've written about those um, relationships of um, people who are unmentored or, or yearning for some kind of guidance that don't get it um, at home and and it's yeah and, and in both cases you're, you're right they're um, they have things to to teach these kids, but uh, things not some things not to learn. Yeah, their, their <laughs> lives aren't exactly. Uh, yeah, they're not paragons by any means. All hospital corners either. No. Um, what about Fenton's role, not in the book, but just in his life as a priest? Um, I actually, well, well, let's just talk about it now. I feel like this is maybe your most um, faith interested novel, which is saying something because it's a theme in a lot of your work. Mm. Um, but I feel like people who look for and enjoy religious imagery or subtext, there's a lot here to chew on. Um, was, was him being a priest a key part of that for you, and was that something you wanted to do in the book? Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I can't, I'm not sure I can even honestly answer, or answer that honestly um, now, because I can't, I can't tell. Um, in the first instance, I wanted Finton to be a priest just so I had an excuse for him to have language. You know, if you're going to go to the remote um, Western Australia, um, <laughs> you've got to find somebody, you've got to find an exceptional reason to give somebody language. Um, because a lot of, particularly if it's a male, because there's not a lot of language available. Um, uh, well, there's language and there's language, obviously. <laughs> you use a lot of both. <laughs> yeah, and so we're, yeah, quite, yeah, both was deployed. Um, <laughs> so I, I, the idea that he was a priest meant that he had an education. Um, and if you made him a, 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 you know, someone from a Celtic background, then language was available to that person, you know, almost as a birthright and, and an assumption that it was okay to use. In fact, it was fun to use. So that, there was that. But yes, yeah, so in, in the end, once I realised that he was a, a, a priest, then there's this, there's this angry, fuming, fantasist, you know, lover at 15 walking across the, you know, the arid zone to his love, um, whether she knows it or not, um, in kind of existential turmoil and, uh, and here's this person who has a, has a background spoiled as he, as he is. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of having two people bump up against each other and, you know, like two dogs sniffing. Um, but for them to ask 
press each other's buttons and ask questions that were essentially oblique, but really about the big things, even if they couldn't, you know, can't. So that was an interesting, yeah. So once I found myself in that mess, I just tried to get myself out as best <laughs> I could. Um, and also, it's a really, it's a really odd time to be talking about these things with, you know, with, you know, uh, you know, formal religion in complete disarray, truth um, and facts uh, in disarray, science, um, obviously being bested by strong feeling, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, what a time to go try, trying to write a kind of a, 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 you know, a strange religious book. <laughs> well, but they but they get at things um, obviously in in I think very large philosophical ways that are that are in in a lot of ways just as secular as religious, um, even though they're adjacent to each other. And they have uh, one conversation back and forth between each other where they're talking about uh, the difference between you know fighting versus surrender and murder versus sacrifice. And um, and Fenton is trying to teach him that you know sometimes they they look one way and they're a different way. And, mm. and um, Jaxie's very adamant about the fact you know, he says that he's crazy about that and I, w I wonder how much of that is you seem like someone who searches for answers to big questions without necessarily thinking you're going to find them and I wonder how much of that is your kind of own inner sense of those issues being played out on the page yeah I, I think yeah there's that well we have that kind of um, in, you know searching um, um, restless impulse um, and some of it's a search for hope, and um, and even if you're not a hopeful person, I think you you realise that um, you have a, you have a kind of an obligation to to not to manufacture hope, but to but to f identify mm -hmm. um, hope r rather than to to assume that it's not that it's not available, that it's not there. Um, there's a kind of courage in that that you know. Um, I guess as a as a younger man, even though I didn't, don't think I really understood Camus um, well when I was reading him as a student, just that the courage to go um, to face things down and and to and to look for reasons not to despair, right. even if on the face of it everything looked like it was cooked. Do, circumstances aside, given how dire some of them are these days, um, do you consider yourself a hopeful person by nature? No. Um, I'm not an optimist. I, I, in that sense, I think sometimes it's a kind of a false question that we ask ourselves because behind the question is, a, is an assumption of emotion, you know, optimism as a kind of a feeling um, and, 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 and hope as a, as a feeling. I see it as a discipline, as a form of discipline. If there's anyone in the world that you love, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or not, if you've got friends, if there's, if there's anything in the world that you love... Um, you know, hope is required, um, and, and to manufacture or to, to to change the conditions that 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 you're faced with, so that hope's possible, so that hope's plausible. I mean, that's your responsibility. Um, so yeah, I, I even if I'm not emotionally feeling hopeful I've, or optimistic, um, I feel like I have to take. I mean. I mean, maybe that's a religious thing. Maybe it's just an existential thing. I, mean, I don't actually see any difference between the two. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but the discipline of hope and optimism is, you know, I guess it's another word for courage. Well, on that word hope, while we're on it, I, have, um, I want to talk about the book's epigraph briefly, which is just a, a scrap of a poem um, by the writer Liam Rector, um, which says, change is slow and hope is violent. 
the entire epigraph. And I, I often think about the slowness of change, both in the world at large and also just in our own individual lives. But, mm -hmm. I, but what about that second part, hope is violent? What does that mean to you in terms of the novel or just in general? Again, I think when we, when we, when we hear the word violent, we always think of, of um, physical force. Um, but when, when hope is alive, it, it breaks things. Hope, you know, in order, in, order to, in order for things to get better, things need to get broken, things need to be upended. Um, whether, that's, whether that's what's happening in our hearts or what, what's happening in our polity or what's happening in our family, in order to make things better, things need to be broken and remade. Um, and obviously, you know, in, in this instance, there's a, there's, in, in, the, in this, this story, there's lots of physical violence. Um, the, almost the most damaging thing is the hope that's in this child's heart. You know, where he, where he wants—he doesn't want to be a thug. He doesn't want to be um, a brute. He doesn't want to be a person that people are, are afraid of. He wants peace. He keeps talking about it all. You know, yeah. <laughs> I want peace. Um, but but, but kind of the, you know, what he what, what what he puts himself through is 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 violent. That you know, because of his hope, because of his aspirations something better. Um, I, I wish I had flagged it. I won't waste time looking for it. But there's, there's a great line in the book where he says something like, you know, I wanted peace and um, I, I don't mean quiet neither. I mean peace. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great, I, I thought that was very profound. <laughs> um, so I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, your parents uh, both left school early to work. Mm. Um, and yet I also know that you, can, you felt from a very young age a strong desire to, to write in particular and to communicate and to express yourself. Um, so I'm wondering about your earliest, um, your earliest exposures to culture, to reading, what that was like, where it came from, whether your parents, despite the schooling, you know, were... were yeah, look, my, my parents were both uh, not, a, not, not untypical of their, their time in their generation, in their class. Um, I guess we're thwarted, you know. They got pulled out of school to, to work. Um, and I think they just wanted for us... Uh, I have um, uh, two brothers and a sister. They just wanted for us um, everything that, that they, couldn't, mm. they couldn't have. And this was at a time in history where you could actually work to create something better for your children, which seems to now be something we've left behind. Um, but yeah, they so so books were always important. The, the the greatest gift you could get in our in our family, you know, um, at Christmas or a birthday, was 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 a book. You know, um, the best night of the week was the the night we got driven to the public library, um, and so I guess there was that as the specialness of language. And then you know we my parents became fundamentalist converts, and so we grew up with the the King James Bible, um, and also this strange kind of working class um, coming together, people, you know, not just sort of working out their own salvation, but working out their own education. They were, they were like, um, they were like the, 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 the similarities between being in a fundamentalist cult, like the, what we were in, and being in a, um, an anarchist cell mm. uh, was quite profoundly you know, it was quite similar i mean it was uh, you know we were we were we were out for each other we were onto each other um but 
but we were bringing each other along and there was that kind of um so it was a kind of it was my early exposure to socialism as well even though right. everyone would have burned across on my front lawn if um <laughs> i'd said anything like that when i was 10 <laughs> but um so th- yeah that, that kind of great the rolling cadences of the of the of the king james bible um so I think I've written somewhere, but you know, when I when I went to high school and first heard Shakespeare, I didn't know what the hell he was on about, but I knew his sound right from the right from the get go. I mean, I knew that that just that beautiful rolling. Yeah, it was just that's a jump on most of us. Yeah, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, and I didn't know the sound. Oh right, just, no, uh, get, give me a minute. It's uh, it's like yeah. jazz. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know how they get those notes in, but I know that I know that noise. <laughs> Do your parents love the language of the Bible? Do you remember other things that they liked reading or? Yeah, the Psalms in particular, um, and of course all the all the really you know all the really ethical stuff. Uh, when I was a kid, was the most boring stuff. All the New Testament, um, you know, we wanted the blood and thunder, you know, from the yeah. old, from the Old Testament. But I know my parents particularly liked um, the Psalms. You know, it was it was musical and. Um, and yeah, the lyrical, the lyrical part. My dad grew up Irish Catholic. When we started going to church when I was a kid, and my mom, we went to a Protestant church, and he said, he said, you know, I don't. This isn't religion to me. These pancake breakfasts. I want someone to tell me that I'm bad and I'm going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want when I go to church. Um, you obviously grew up in and just you know with a ton of exposure to this amazing landscape um, and living in in nature. And um, did you feel? Did you feel, it might be hard to think back to that state of mind back then, but do you, do you feel looking back that you understood nature in the way that a writer understands something before you understood people or social connections? Um, I don't mean that to make you sound feral. I, I mean social no, connections. Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure I was. Put it this way, <laughs> I was very conscious uh, of being a child of having a preference for the outdoors over the indoors because in the outdoors you, you, you had agency. Mm-hmm. And when you're a kid, you don't have that much power. Well, not not in my childhood. Um, and once once you're out outside, you know you you could write the script in a way. And and we only ever came home to get fed um, on dark anyway. Maybe but once you're power. inside, once you're inside, you're in you're in the world of domesticity mm-hmm. and obligation. Um, but of course, the more you get to know the, the the world of the outdoors, there are there are obligations and and domesticities and, and rules and patterns anyway that you're subject to. Um, so I, I guess you find out a different, you know, you find out all your obligations and um, at different rates. But yeah, I think I, I think I felt, yeah, probably the best way I can explain this. When I started to read the nature poets and and I started to read um, the mystics um, as a 18, 19 year old. The connection, you know, the finding finding words for the it gave me words for what I str- had strong feelings, you know, the strong. I mean, I'm, I'm making making a mess of explaining this, but no, those poets, you know, gave me a language for the strong feelings I'd had since childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that, that that the world was alive, mm-hmm. and even though uh, at school the science was telling me that the, that the world was just a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, the older I got, the the more I realised that you know um, the medieval organic view of the world was probably not just more realistic, but it was more scientific, <laughs> as we've discovered since. Um, I just have a couple of processy questions for you. I know writers sometimes hate those, but I'm curious about two things in particular. You, you you're overestimating me if you think this is a process. <laughs> <laughs> um, you do write. Just making you, this shit up as I go along. Mate. 
<laughs> well, this is about the order in which you make that shit up. Okay. Um, so you, you write at length and so beautifully about landscape in these ways. They're very immersive. And then you do have these... Um, the dialogue's not always terse and snappy, but sometimes it is. And I wonder if you flow through those things while you're writing the way that we do while we're reading them, or is it I have to sit down and write about this bluff, and then later I have to sit down and write about this conversation between the two people over dinner? Oh, look, I, I sort of charge through the best I can, you know, breaking all the china on my way from one door to the next, and then I come back and try and tidy up and cover my tracks, I suppose. Um, and... And of course, you know, with dialogue, you, you, you're trying, you're trying to get the, the most said in, without, you know, people talking to it. People are always talking across each other and uh, away from each other, um, and that's where the that's where the dialogue is really. Um, not so much in the words that are said, but what's what's how they're missing each other, how they're misinterpreting each other, what they're leaving out. There's a lot of that in this book. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, there had to be. Yeah, in a way, but um, <laughs> yeah, but most of the time I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. G given, <laughs> given that you say that, and that I've heard you say it in entertaining different ways <laughs> over the years, I imagine that you don't feel prolific to yourself. Other people would describe you that way, but do you feel like, oh, I, I for for work of such high quality, I get these. I you know I've done a lot, or do you feel stymied? Uh, no, I don't feel stymied. I, I feel lazy a lot of the time. But um, and I, but yeah, look, I'm now I'm an, an old person, um, and I look back because I've been doing it since I was a kid, almost literally. Um, yeah, I think well, I've, I have done a few things, but it, it never felt um, never felt prolific because that 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 sounds like a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, I, looking back, I mean, I wrote, I, I wrote at that pace because I could, I suppose, um, because I was young and full of piss and vinegar. But I think I wrote at that pace because I was desperate, because I, I, you know, I was trying to write literary prose for a living, which is just mental. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I had no other means of employment. Um, and I had children early, so we were, I was just charging charging away and in a way that I couldn't possibly do now because I just haven't got that vigor you know right. um, you're more Fenton than Jaxie now yeah I guess uh, you, you could, there's a lot of ways I could take that but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but probably yeah probably in more ways than I'd like to admit um, um, yeah it's 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 odd you're not that you're not that conscious of um of, of your own pace and and um I was just I was caught in the in the life, and honestly, I was I think I was just. Even though I was terrified most of the time, I think I was enjoying the fact that I could. It's like riding a bike, you you, you know you're going to fall over in any second, but the yeah. fact that you're not falling over, <laughs> and obviously not falling over riding a bike has a lot to do with momentum. If you can keep going mm -hmm. forward, you're half a chance of not falling off. The yeah. slower you go, the. And yeah, that sort of headlong thing. I mean, momentum's always been important to me. In, if we're going to talk process, you know, getting going right. is, is the hardest part and staying going. Reminds me of when you talked about having agency in the outdoors and it's kind of a different kind when you found it on the page. Maybe it was like, oh, this is a giant area for me to run around in and expend some energy and this is fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I, didn't, 
I didn't know. I mean, I, I hadn't travelled much. I didn't know much, but um, I, I guess I loved where I was and, mm. and the more you scratch, the more you find. I want to talk about activism for a few minutes before we take questions from the audience. I'm squinting because the clock is in the dark back there. But um, uh, you have spoken about your activism and your um, creative uh, anarchy or not process, but whatever you want to call it, as, as very separate you know, entities in your life. And, mm -hmm. um, and I'm reminded of an American writer I admire named David James Duncan, who is a... Um, writes a lot about sort of spirituality in general. He's, and he is from the Pacific Northwest of America and very invested in the, in the land up there. And mm. he's also an activist. And I, I don't know him, and so I can't say that this is why, but it's, you know, his last novel was published almost 30 years ago, I think. And I wonder, as you get older and as things seem, I don't think many people will disagree, more and more dire in a lot of ways, whether you feel a need to pay more attention to that balance and whether this place that you so love feels like it has an even stronger grip on your time and mental energy these days. Yeah, look, I think that's fair. I, I think, um, look, I, I'm, I'm, I come from this, you know, Protestant background of, of and, 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 and this kind of unlettered background, so there was always a lot of psychological pressure um, knowing that I was essentially embarking on a life of useless labour. And, you know, and art, art is, you know, supreme uselessness and it doesn't mm -hmm. need an excuse mm -hmm. to, to exist. And it took, took me a long time as an, as an adult to own the fact that I was doing something that, um, not that it doesn't matter, but it just that it doesn't, it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't change things. It doesn't cure anything. It doesn't... Um, and... I and coming from my background, it took a lot of owning the fact that, okay, I'm going to do something that's, that's about beauty, um, and there's a utility in beauty, that, but it's not quite the same thing. Yeah. And then to own that all your life, but then, and, and to think, well, okay, I don't, you know, the artist doesn't have to, all the artist has to do is, is to do good work. Um, they don't need any other excuse. Yeah. Um, but I suppose as, as I've been conscious, particularly as of someone, as you say, who's, who's dependent on landscape, for inspiration, for charging up my my spirit, um, just realizing that you know we are we're in a world of trouble, and the landscapes that I'm writing about, the places that I depend on, that I that I love as as family, and that's something I have learnt in my lifetime to not just admire a place or not appreciate a place, but to have a familiar relationship with it of obligation. Um, these places are in such trouble that you know I have to fight for them, and, and if that means taking time off, off, uh, off, being an artist and and being a, a rabble rouser instead to, to fight for those places for, for, for the people who are not yet with us, mm. um, then, so be it. You know I also have you know let's be honest I have the luxury to do it because I, you know I'm not fighting for to keep the wolf from the door in, in the way that I was in my 20s, for instance. But, um, but I think a lot of us, whether, whatever our position, I think a lot of people who are in, in, the, in the arts space, who are arts workers, just feel uh, more and more you know, culturally, geographically, biologically, ecologically bound up, caught up. We, you know, we are, there's, there's, not much, there's not much chance of sidestepping 
yeah. this one. You know, yeah. this is not. This is, you know, the the point we are in history has taken us um, to the brink where we we can. It, you, know, you can struggle to see a viable future mm. for the children of your grandchildren, mm. and so I'm, 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 I, that makes me think about not just have I lived a good life, but am I going to be a good ancestor? Am I a good ancestor? And I think that's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. That's well said. And I, I, I do think there's a lot of beauty in art, and I, and I love your rabble-rousing. I'm all for it. But I do think, I, I would say that just, that I think that art can, doesn't always, and it doesn't have to, it has no, you know, mm. that it can do some of that breaking up of things inside that you talked about in terms of hope. And I, I don't doubt that your writing has changed a lot of people's views of the natural world and, and their place in it and what they want to do for it. Um, so we have about 15 minutes left, I think. So I think we, I imagine we have a lot of questions in the audience. So we have um, four, I was told we have four microphones. Um, you don't have to, by the way, it's not school. Or we, no, we're gonna have one question from everyone before later. we leave today. So get Process. ready. What's that? Uh, right behind you up there in the, in the very back. Don't be shy. Uh, yeah, hi. Sorry, I appreciated that uh, talk. It was very good. Um, you have an ability to make the reader feel like he's in the book. And I particularly found that with Breathe. Um, my first ever surfing experience as a Scotsman was at <laughs> Margaret River. And it was quite terrifying. Are you a surfer yourself? Did you learn at Cottesloe or something? Uh, yes, so I, I've, uh, I've started surfing in 1965. Um, and you think I'd get better by uh, over the, over the years, but uh, <laughs> yeah, surfing surfing for me has always just been a, an enormous um, outlet. Um, but also, it's just there's a there's a corollary there. I think I've learnt over over time that surfing and writing uh, they're not you know they're not always seen as a, a natural match. Um, the thing, that, the thing that they have in common as a writer and a surfer is a lot of waiting involved. Um, and and a, a wave, you know, for a surfer, you know, the, you're waiting for a swell. And a swell is just the, the, the residue of an event across the horizon that's long past. And it, these events that have happened across the horizon radiate outwards. And uh, as a surfer, you... You crave them, you wait for them, you turn around, you try and when they do arrive, you turn around and try and match their speed, catch up with them <laughs> and uh, and ride their energy to the shore. And as a novelist or a short story writer, that's kind of what I do. I mean, I show up at the desk and bob around, uh, <laughs> waiting, waiting, and hope that something c comes across the event horizon. And, and essentially, the little stories and, you know, ideas and memories, it, it, it just r ripples from from you know old events taking it out of metaphor you how often do you get out these days because when you're around 50 i saw you said you take another 10 to 15 years of surfing and you're, it's a few years later yeah um i'm still going five days a week oh wow so yeah um but it comes down to how good the old back is in the end yeah <laughs> anybody else third row hi there um, hello oh god that's loud is it that's all right. <laughs> Where are we? Ozzy um, Osman's louder. <laughs> Next, over here. Yeah. Sorry. Oh. Uh, what afternoon mean? I have no idea where we are. Raise oh. your hand. Yes. I'm there here. we go. Thank oh, you. There you go. <laughs> Lights are quite bright. Hello. Flower uh, on. Sorry. Um, no, it's just a quick comment, but would you consider yourself to be quite a spiritual person then? Because it seems to me you're saying things just come out. You, you know, it's not as if you're planning it. It's more like you're waiting for 
inspiration and for things to evolve and come from somewhere within you rather than... Yeah, look, I've, that's kind of how it is. I don't know if that really means I qualify as a particularly spiritual person, but um, I'm doing this for money. Um, well, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think most people who, who are in this caper... Um, you, you have to you have to wait. I mean, there's there's all the planning in the world you can do, but um, things turn up in their in their own time, and you you need to you need to re respect the, the the time that it takes mm -hmm. for things to show up. Um, and look, not a, you know, I'm not channeling anything. I'm just mm -hmm. um, grasping after bits and pieces that are out there, you know, in, like in, in the culture. It's like waiting to be written and you're just... Or stolen, because, you know, we've just, yeah. just, we're like magpies. You know? <laughs> we, just, we just pick, pick like things it. up. I like it. It's really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Describe it, so, yeah. Oh, thanks. I'll go over here now. Yeah, I just wonder where you write, because you do write very well about the outdoors. I mean, do you ever make notes in the outdoors, or is it that you sit down in a, a desk and just draw from your inspiration of being outside? Uh... No, I, I don't really take any notes, um, and I wouldn't do it outside because you know, I, works for inside, uh, funds for outside, and also you know, to, to work outside where I live, you'd be burnt to a crisp in 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 ten minutes. I live in the, I live on the edge of the desert, so. Um, but honestly, you know, if you, and I've lived my, most of my life, you know, in. Indoors, outdoors, the two things are together. It's like the physical world and the, and the life of the mind. And I can't, can't easily separate them. So it, it's no big thing for me to, you know, to be in, in, indoors. Um, I ca carry all, all the things, you know, in the same way that, you know, whatever I did this, this morning in, in the, you know, in the big gnarly world, um, I can... I can Maybe some of that will show up in the day's work, but things I did as a three-year-old or a seven-year-old, they're still with me as well. You know, you're dragging along all this baggage, you know, like a, like a comet or a dumpster fire, I don't know. <laughs> Anybody else? Hi, um, I just wanted to say that um, uh, I've, I'm retired now, but I work with kind of very challenging young people and even though I'm retired now, I'm always find it so heartrending those troubled young people who've lost their way and they're so angry and all the rest of it mm. and and how wonderful it was to take them outdoors and how they absolutely seem to come alive and love that being out in the wilds and that kind of thing. Where, where did you kind of experience that, that you were able to bring that into your books? I don't know. I, I think... Um I, I think it's just from, from from childhood. I think you know, when you're when you're a child, and then of course when you're an adolescent, you're just full of turmoil. Even if you're you know, even if you're as um, as well loved and nurtured as as I was as a as a young person, you're you're always coming up against things that are, that are incomprehensible. It's like why why is it like like this? And you're in, you get caught up in this kind of um, knots of rage. And I just felt um, that you know in the in the in the natural world I could um, I could be purged I and mean, I think you know the, the desert and the and the, um, and the and the forest and the ocean they're similar I mean the ocean in particular was very important to me as a as an adolescent because it was like a 
big salty poultice that would suck the poison out of me. Um, and I, you know, and I'm still similar. I mean, my anyone in my family knows that I'm a I'm I'm an easier prospect to deal with um, after I've been in the water than I <laughs> am before I've been in the water. Um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. it's it is hard to um, to to see the, the, these younger pe people, you know, who are boiling with trouble because um, you know these damaged people go on and. Do damage, and um, and I think I, was, I guess I was just grateful that I managed to find um, ways out of it. And and, it's, and two things, I guess I found a language um, to express myself in, and then the outdoors gave me a second language in which to express myself. Um, and those are two things that you know, as you'll know from your work, you know, finding finding languages to to, to give to younger people to to, li to liberate them, and it's hard. It's not always easy to find the right language. Over here on the left. Oh, we'll get to you next. Thanks very much. Yeah, I, I think perhaps I feel a little bit like the last lady. It was interesting you saying that it was challenging for you to be with that character because he's so unpleasant. Because I find him intensely lovable and um, I think as you said he does have a conscience he does have a discipline mm. and and um, he, he has empathy and to, to my mind quite strong he does have morals that almost to the point where I, that for me I, I sort of struggled to believe in that because he's had such a horrible childhood to have to have the sort of luxury of such a generous empathy for other people I've you know, maybe I'm too cynical, but mm. I thought I would I would have accepted him being a bit more horrible. <laughs> oh, that's a note to self. <laughs> go harder, Tim. Go harder. Um, but honestly, would you have picked him up if he was hitching along the road? You wouldn't have picked him up. You wouldn't have him in your house. You know, I'm not going to have him in my house. Um, perhaps I know more about him than you, but uh, <laughs> it's probably more of me in him than uh, you. Um, no, it's interesting though. I, I think um, yes, I think he is. He, I think he, he is a sociopath, and he and he is a deeply moral person. He's trying to. He, he's he's got two sides of him that he's trying to he's trying to figure out, you know. Um, but you f you forget that you know he does murder his way across the landscape. He's killing anything that moves. He needs to well, um, to eat. Yeah. yeah. We have someone over there where you're nailing, and then we'll go one up, and then that might that might be it. We'll see how timing goes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that gentleman. I thought you had someone where you were. Hi. Um, do you dream about the characters in your books? Uh, and if the answer is yes, um, about the characters the, in the book you're writing, and um, or, or do you dream about characters in books you've written years ago? Do they come back to haunt you? I mean, do they appear like old friends? Uh, it's a very nice way of putting it. Um, Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> Short um, well, I, th I think the, I think yeah, um, yes. Uh, I, I get, I have dreams about um, uh, characters I read about years ago, as you as you said. And the only way I can explain that, you know, it's probably an argument of convenience, but um, the only way I can explain it is that. Making people come to life and keeping them alive 
for 200 pages or 400 pages or two years or four years or seven years, however long the book takes to, 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 to um, generate and finish. It's quite intense as, as an experience and if it's any good for the reader, um, you know, you, you, what you're trying to give to the reader is as close to a genuine, authentic experience as possible. Um, so it has to be very intense for yourself as, as a writer. So, um, so yeah, I, I often, uh, well not often, but I occasionally uh, wake up very upset from a dream where somebody close to me has had something terrible happen to them and then I realise, you know, <laughs> before I've even put my feet on the floor, that I've just had a dream about somebody who doesn't even exist, um, <laughs> who I've made up. Um, but obviously, you know, I'd, I'd had, you know, such, such a, an intense um, work experience with this person where it was as good as, a genu as, good as an experience. Um, and so you get an afterburn from that. And um, I'd, I'd, I'd hope that that, you know, doesn't get too, uh, too intense because... You know, I've got to look after my mental health. I'll ask you one last question. Uh, I told them we'd finish right on time, which is just about sure. now. But as, as movies are made of your books, are you, since you dream about them and you see them so clearly, you're involved with the movies, but do you ever, do you ever think to yourself, boy, he looks different than I thought he would? Oh, almost always. I mean, ev ev any kind of adaptation, everything, everything is different. When you give your, your work over to be adapted, you're... You, you're doing it knowingly that someone else is going to interpret that and it's going to be completely di different. Um, having said that, um, sometimes I've been to a play or, or seen a film and the person who's played a character is then thereafter forever wow. that person in your mind. So you're, um, you're as manipulable as anybody. <laughs> Um, I'll just say, uh, on a practical note before we finish, uh, Tim's going to be signing books in the signing hut, which is uh, near a big sign that says Jen, so that's how I remember it. Um, and he'll be there in just a few minutes. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to spirit him away quickly, but you can talk to him there and have him sign books. Um, I can't properly describe what an honor this was for me, so I just want to thank Tim Winton and, and all of you for being such a great audience. So please thank Tim. Thank you. Thank you. All right, <laughs> Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.